Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there's one supplied in the pew in front of you. You can grab that and find this passage on page 844. So we're going to read Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's word as I read. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever, for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we're going to be heading back into Isaiah next week, but this morning um, on both Mother's Day and a morning where we're going to be celebrating communion, we're going to um, look at several texts that are all centered around a common theme. And I want you to think for a minute with me about the fact that the Bible and the Christian life are full of paradoxes, okay? That is the plural of paradox, just in case you're wondering. I double-checked. So a paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet it is perhaps true. Okay, so there's lots of this in Christian life. The first will be last. The last will be first. Whoever wants to be great in the kingdom must be slave of all. Comfort is experienced in and through pain and suffering. Humility is the path to glory, and humility is glorious, and glory is manifest through shame. There's lots of this in the Bible. Strength is found in weakness. Power is expressed through weakness. Wisdom is found in foolishness, the foolishness of the cross. So 
paradoxes are not just these kind of intellectual curiosities that are kind of fun to bat around. The fact that they seem contradictory can mean that in our experience, they run against the grain of our souls. Okay? They can, they can seem impossible to us. For instance, for most people who are not uniquely gifted or trained as an actor or an actress, the call to exhibit genuine emotion on cue would seem impossible. You see the paradox? Genuine, believable, real emotion on cue. How's that, how's that possible? Okay, so the paradox of that seems like, at least for the non-actor types like me, that would seem impossible. How do you do that? Well, there is a paradox at the heart of the Christian life that we're going to consider this morning, and it quite often cuts against the grain of our souls. But we need to learn the deep wisdom of this paradox, and we need to learn to live it out. And that paradox can be summarized like this. You can only gain your life by losing your life. Okay, so let's look together back at Mark chapter 8, the text that we read um, for the Scripture reading, and then we'll see some other texts that, that uh, fall in line with this theme, kind of have sympathetic vibrations with Mark 8. So first point, dying to live. We'll just read verses 34 and 35 again. So Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone desires, if anyone would or wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Well, there's another denial in the Gospel of Mark that sheds some light on what this denial means, what it looks like. Anybody thinking what I'm thinking? Remember Peter? It's actually the same term. If you were to flip ahead to chapter 14, you don't have to look there, but he denied Jesus three times. Okay? That is a picture of the opposite of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's the opposite of losing your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel. So Peter, instead of doing that, he denied Jesus because he wanted to save his life. Had he continued on that path, he would have forfeited his life, his soul, forever. But thankfully, Jesus is able to save and restore turncoats like Peter and like you and me, okay? So that's just a picture of this denying yourself language in Mark 8, but what does it mean to take up your cross and follow him? Well, again, taking up a cross is a one-way journey, okay? If you take up a cross, you're heading to die. You're not coming back, okay? You are going to die. And even though you're going to die you're not coming back, still with the nature of our selfishness and our hearts and how it just keeps cropping back up, this denial, this taking up our cross is not a once and done sort of thing. It's more like a daily rhythm of life. 
So listen to um, a guy named Cornelius Plantica. He described this rhythm like this. He says, everybody wants liberty. The problem is that everybody wants it on his own, on his own terms. But salvation doesn't work that way. God doesn't save people from slavery, from addiction, from sin and shame, and then cut them loose to do what they want because without the guidance of God, doing what we want is a recipe for falling right back into slavery. So to prevent a relapse, God preserves those who die and rise with Christ in baptism and who respond to their faith with baptism. How? The Spirit of God empowers believers to keep the rhythm going where dying and rising are concerned. Yielding to the Spirit of God, a believer seeks the death of her old self and the resurrection of her new self. That is, she puts her arrogance to death and raises her humility to life. She puts envy to death and raises gratitude to life. She puts rage to death and raises gentleness to life. When she breaks this good rhythm for a time, she confesses her sins, which is another form of dying because it kills us to admit we are in the wrong. What's wonderful is that when a person goes through the little death of confession to imitate Jesus' big death at Golgotha, she also rises toward new life, like Jesus walking out of his tomb. Confession of sin is an enormously freeing thing to do. Once reformed, a Christian life needs continual reformation. Even our reforms need reforming, and especially when we grow proud of them or despairing of them. And the central rhythm of reform is dying and rising with Christ practiced over and over till it becomes a way of being. Okay, so to follow Jesus, this is the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection at work in our lives over and over and over again. Yes, in a decisive way, when we're converted, when we become Christians, when we die to that old way of life and we come alive to Jesus for the first time, but we continue on that path over and over and over again. It's lots of little deaths and lots of little resurrections until the day of the final death and the final resurrection. Okay, so just by the way, this pattern, this is actually how you get ready to die. By practice. By lots of little deaths and lots of little resurrections. And I think this is why many Christians, or at least so-called Christians, fear death. Because they're so unfamiliar with the faithfulness of God in this rhythm. They've lived so selfishly. They haven't died to this world and its allurements. They love this world and are way too alive to it. And so death seems like loss. But for Paul, and hopefully for us, if we want to follow him as he followed Christ, to live was Christ and to die was gain because he knew this rhythm. He lived this rhythm. He had already counted, Philippians 3, counted everything as loss for the sake of Christ, and he continued to count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as his Lord. So there was daily lots of little deaths lots of little resurrections. So we must die if we're going to live. It's a paradox. But we we really shouldn't be so surprised. We should know and see how loving and wise Jesus is to call us to come and die, to live. Just some examples here. If you don't kill your addictive impulses, 
you will dull or deaden your heart. If you don't kill your idols, a little shout out to Bob Dylan. Anybody? No. Okay. Um, if you don't kill your idols, you will give life to your idol. It gets a stronger hold on you. Okay? I think we know this intuitively. If you don't kill your addictive um, impulses with food or lust or alcohol or entertainment or shopping, even slavery to technology, if, if you don't kill the addictive impulses, what happens? It actually has a deadening killer effect on your health, your finances, your relationships. If we don't kill our addictive impulses to control and manipulate, you'll kill relationships. If we don't kill addictive impulses to lie and spin, you'll kill trust and respect. If we don't kill addictive impulses to fear and anxiety and people-pleasing, you'll kill your peace and security and courage and integrity. So when Jesus calls us to come and die, he's calling us to deny ourselves of every impulse that's in us as a result of the fall, every impulse that's killing us. So the only thing that will die is actually your selfish, sinful nature. So let me just ask you, have you ever regretted giving in and not denying yourself in some area where you're typically tempted? I mean, who hasn't? Have you ever regretted denying yourself and following Jesus? Like, this is just kind of like, duh, why are we so thick? That's why we need to hear this over and over again. Now, there's a, a second step, kind of an implication to this dying and living paradox. When you die to living for your selfish self, you not only begin to live, but you also begin to give life to others. Second point, dying to give life. This is what Jesus did ultimate, ultimately. I mean, he's the ultimate illustration of this. But this is also what his followers do. Look at the, at the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it <clears throat> on page 965. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for many. He died that we might live. But also, Paul, following in Jesus' footsteps, you know, he didn't die for people in the same way that Jesus did, but there still is a way in which we imitate Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So Paul writes, we have this treasure, the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in jars of clay. We're just clay pots, nothing impressive. But the gospel's impressive, and it's a treasure. So we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So look at verse 11. What what does it mean to be given over to death for Jesus' sake? Again, these are little deaths. Paul was oftentimes led into suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of loving other people with the gospel. It's actually parallel to Mark 8, what we just looked at. If you lose your life for my sake and the gospel's, for the sake of sharing the gospel with others, for the sake of loving others, that sacrifice of love that's costly. Okay, so it's the suffering, the trials, the cost of loving others for Jesus' sake. Okay, there's also a tip-off to the meaning of the phrase in the immediate context. Do you see those adversatives um, in verses 8 and 9? Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Think about it. It's the dying of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Afflicted in every way is like the dying of Jesus, but not crushed. That's the life of Jesus at work. Perplexed, yes, that's the death, but not driven to despair. I'm still alive. Struck down, that's the death, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Okay, or you don't have to turn there, but a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, he said, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. We'll gladly suffer and become weak so that you can be strengthened by God's grace. That's what happens when you're following Jesus. It's not just that you die and live, but you die so that you can give life to other people. So yes, if you're going to follow Jesus, you'll come and die. You'll die to your selfish desires. You'll not live for your own comfort. You will live to bring true comfort to others. You won't live to avoid suffering. You will live to move toward suffering and alleviate it. So when you understand that this is God's MO, like this is how God works, then we're going to stop begrudging and resenting and running from and resisting daily death. No more self-pity. No more woe is me. No more big stage size. (sighs) You know, all my suffering makes sure somebody sees this. No, Paul says, I'll most gladly spend and be spent for your sake because my death means life in you. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Let me read a little more of that Plantiga quote that I read from earlier. Take compassion as an example of dying and rising. A compassionate Christian feels distress at another's suffering and wants to relieve it. His willingness to weep with those who weep represents the death of scorn. He made his own bed. Let him lie in it. And it represents the death of aloofness. Why should I care about people tortured by a military dictator in some country I can't even pronounce? 
Compassion represents the death of our old self with its emotional stinginess and the birth of our new self with its emotional generosity. The compassionate person unites with Jesus Christ in losing his life to find it by getting out of his shell and into the full range of the world's joys and sorrows. So this is when the grace of God is operative in us. When we believe these promises, we will gladly die so that we can really live. We will gladly die so that we can give life to others. One little additional bit here on that planting a quote. Meanwhile, the recipient of compassion gains vitality too. Love vivifies us. If the givers and receivers of compassion are believers, they will connect their exchange to the suffering love of the Son of God who did not remain aloof but made himself vulnerable for us and for our salvation. Now, sadly, the opposite is true. And again, I think we know this. If you allow an emotional spark with a coworker to remain alive, and certainly if you feed it, if you give it life, you will deaden your marriage. If you kill it, you will breathe life into your marriage. Or if you allow a sense of entitlement to live, or you feed it, it will kill love and deaden relationships. Or if you allow a grudge or bitterness to live, and if you feed it, if you allow revenge or retaliation or the desire for a pound of flesh, make them pay. If you feed that, you're going to bring death into these relationships. Or if you're simply just lazy and indifferent or passive, like, I hated seeing this in others, and I see it sometimes in me, and I hate it, where I'm so focused on what I need to do if I push off my kids. If, if I operate like that over and over and over again, what am I going to do? I'm going to deaden those relationships. I'm going to kill them. And it could just be laziness, indifference, or passivity, selfishness, okay? So remember that pattern and rhythm idea. When these things are given life time and again, they become who we are, and we, we feel like we can't do otherwise. It feels impossible. So you can see how idols kill. Even though they promise life, they bring death, and so that's why it's so loving for Jesus to say, he bids us come and die so that we may live and so that we may give life. Okay? So, what's, what's dead? What relationships are dead in your life right now that the Lord may be calling you to come and die so that you can live, so that you can breathe life into that relationship. Is it your marriage? Is it your family? Are there some family relationships? Some things you need to die to and you need to be raised to life by the power of the resurrection, the spirit of God working in you? How about your home group? Is there some deadness there? Do you see how if you selfishly, well, it's the way it always is, or nobody seems to be reaching out to me, 
What if you die and give life as His resurrection power is at work in you to pour out grace and love and sacrificial care and service to others? How about your neighbors who need to know Jesus? I mean, how do people who are dead in their sins come alive? Somebody's got to die to their fears and their comfort and their privacy and come out of their shell and take a risk. So can I give you a practical thing to do? We've done this in previous summers where there's a book of the month that we make um, that is helpful for all of us about the gospel, but then it's a book that you can give away. So the book of the month is called Who is Jesus? And it's really well written. And I'd encourage you to get a copy and read it and pray about who you should get out of your comfort zone and give it to. So it's May right now. You can spend May reading it, and then you've got the summer to pray and give it to somebody. Shouldn't be too hard, right? So this kind of dying to give life can be as small scale and practical as dying to that email so that you can give your wife or your child or your husband or whoever your full attention. It's as every day as putting your reputation on the chopping block by seeking to share the gospel with one of your coworkers or just being willing to identify as a Christian in a group of coworkers rather than shrinking back and being quiet. And it's also as large scale as the culture in a church. I mean, just you can imagine the church culture difference between the majority of the members getting this or the majority of the members not getting this. I mean, imagine if in, in a church, most of the members are trying to save their life and their comfort and privacy and whatever. It's not going to be a very loving, life-giving place, is it? I mean, dead. So this is a call to die, to live, and it's a call to die, to give life. And this is a daily call. Point three, um, we read in Mark 8, if anyone wants to come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. Well, do you know what it, there's one word that's added that really jumps out in the Luke account of this same passage. You can jot it down if you want to look at it later, Luke 9, 23. But Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay, so again, this isn't a once and done thing. Paul lived this. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if the dead are not raised at all, why are we in danger every hour? Why am I risking my life? I die every day, he said. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Or how about Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's this regular, daily thing. Paul wanted to be dead to the right things so that he would be alive to the right things. And again, if we know our hearts, if we know sin, I mean, if you think Stephen Seagal is hard to kill, sin is much harder to kill, okay? It's like hot smoldering coals that come to life if given just a little bit of fuel. Or remember that whack-a-mole game? whack just Okay, cultural references, forget those. Um, so 
It's this little stupid mole. It's like a, what do they call it, arcade game or something. This thing just pops up and you have this hammer and you just whack it and it keeps popping up everywhere. It's kind of like sin. It just keeps, you kill it. It's alive again. It's alive again. It rears its ugly head over and over and over. And so daily discipleship is daily mortifying and daily vivifying, dying, putting our selfishness to death, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus so that we can really live. Okay, so even though sin is insidious, it keeps cropping up, don't ever forget that Jesus is stronger and he is more persistent and stubborn than our sin. He is the death eater. He is a warrior whose double-edged sword can kill the parasitic life that's killing us and having this deadening effect on our relationships. The Spirit of God loves to breathe life into our deadness so that we might really live, so that we might really give life by denying ourselves for the sake of sacrificial love, okay? So our daily death is not only so that we might live, but so that we might give life to others. This is the power of the cross and the resurrection. Now, if you think of a metaphor for this phenomenon, what might you choose? Look around in the world around you. Hmm, what day is it, okay? Paul died daily that others might live. That sounds a lot like the life of a good mother, doesn't it? Well, Paul thought so too. Obviously, God did because he inspired Paul to write this. So listen to how he described his ministry to the Christians in Thessalonica. He said, we could have made demands. This is 1 Thessalonians 2.6. We could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So what did Paul and his helpers, his little band, what did they What did they do? They died to their rights and their comfort and their ease in order that they might give life to the Thessalonians, that they would live and grow and flourish in Christ. How about what happens in the heart of a mother when she has a wayward child? I mean, just listen to the expression, one of the expressions that we use today. It kills her. Now listen to the Apostle Paul. In fact, turn there. Galatians chapter 4. It's on page 974. Listen to the Apostle Paul talk to the Galatians along these lines. 419. Just that one verse. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So Paul had labored to reach the Galatians with the gospel and help them grow in Christ. And and that was like pregnancy and childbirth. And from what I hear, it's pretty painful. Man, are you guys awake this morning? Okay. 
Um, but after Paul left, they started to wander off, didn't they? They wandered off the path of following Jesus. They were giving ear to a different gospel that was no gospel at all. And Paul was really concerned that his labor might be in vain. So he is again. Do you see the again there in verse 19? My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is truly formed in you. Until you are solid and grounded in the gospel. So here is this single man saying that his ministry is like spiritual motherhood. He was willing to endure all kinds of pain and suffering, little deaths, in order to give life to the Galatians and the Thessalonians and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so this is the life that we're called to live. Now, if you're honest with yourself, I mean, if you're kind of in touch with your own heart, like, why do we hesitate? Why do we shrink back when Jesus says, come and die? Come and die. Come and die to give life, to serve, to bless this other person. Why do we hesitate? Why do we shrink back? Why are we seemingly spring-loaded to deny Jesus and not ourselves? We don't trust him. We don't always trust him. It's like a child who doesn't trust his mother when she needs to take out a splinter. Have you ever seen this or your own children freaking out? Or like a patient who doesn't trust his doctor or surgeon when he needs to cut out the cancer, probably the splinter is a better illustration. Why is this daily death so hard? We want to deny Jesus and follow our own comfort zone path. Why? Because we want to live, not die. We think more for us is where life is at. More comfort, less risk, more safety, less obligation, more freedom. It's lies. Is the self-denial that Jesus calls us to, is it ultimate loss? Are the deaths, the little deaths of the Christian life, are they worth it? Remember that regret question? Have you ever regretted giving in to your temptations? Have you ever regretted denying yourself and following Jesus? But all die. So we fear and shrink back. But what if we knew, what if we just knew it was the path to life? Like the older child who tries to calm the younger child who is hysterical in the face of his first splinter. I felt the same way. Mom's really good at this. Yeah, it'll hurt for a second, but... Do you see, this is why we do this in community. We come and die to live, and we give life. We do this together. We need to do this together. We need each other. like a cancer survivor who tries to calm the frantic person in the face of that new diagnosis. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Or at least maybe you're familiar with the illusion. Okay, because I've been like striking out with the cultural references, so maybe <laughs> this will help. 
Um, so remember hopeful at the end? I mean, what if we really knew it was the path to life? Hopeful in the end of Pilgrim's Progress, they're coming to the river, which is representative of death. It's this allegory of the Christian life, okay? So they've got to cross the river if they're going to get to the celestial city. You just have to. There's no other way. So here's what it says. The pilgrims began to despair in their minds and look this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all of a depth. Is it the same for everybody? And they said, no. Yet they could not help them in that case, for they said, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. They then addressed themselves to the water, and entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend, hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters, the billows go over my head, all his waves go over me. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother, I feel the bottom and it is good. Well, guess what? There's one even better than hopeful who has been there and back again. And I'm not talking about Bilbo Baggins, okay? So the proof that these promises are true that there is life on the other side of death. You don't have to fear and shrink back from that call to come and die. The proof that these promises are true is in the pioneer who died and rose again. He's the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's not just a once-and-done question answered. That's an everyday. If this daily death is an everyday, do you believe this? Are you going to trust me? Yeah, it's going to be costly, but do you want to really live? Do you want to give life? Hebrews 12, you know, that race. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is a cloud of witnesses that died to live. And they finished their course. So they have stuff to say to us. They're preaching to us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Throw off the stuff that's killing us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us on the Calvary Road of daily death and daily being raised by the power of the resurrection, by the Spirit of God, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the fact that he is alive is doubly, it's doubly the proof for us. So our living Savior is proof that it is the path to life. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised. The ultimate death and resurrection, but also all the little deaths and resurrections. There will be resurrection power grace on the other side of that risk of love. You can trust him.
and our living Savior died to make this the path of life. And he was raised, proving that he's as good as his word. So, as we come to the table, where are you at? Have you been trying to save your life? Are you afraid to yield and die and follow Jesus? Have you been shrinking back from dying to live, dying to give life? Good news. (laughs) Jesus loves to restore deniers like Peter. And he can give grace. He died to give grace so that we can be empowered to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him so that we can die, so that we really live. He wants us to really live. And he can give us the grace. Maybe there's some new obedience, some risk he wants you to take and you are so afraid to do it. I'm going to die. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me, I'm alive. And the fact that I'm alive is proof that there's going to be resurrection power for you in this call to come and die on this path. So I encourage you to just take a few moments and examine your hearts and where you need to repent, where you need to say, Lord, I want to die to these things. These things are way too alive. They've got too much hold on me. I want to be alive to you. Let the Lord deal with you there and give you grace for this rhythm of death and life. And then examine your relationships and your kind of posture toward others. Am I kind of shrinking in on myself, turning in on myself, trying to save my life, or am I most gladly willing to spend and be spent for the sake of others? Let's pray. God, would you show us? You are so loving in your desire to do this. Would you show us the the things that are killing us? Show us the the things that deaden our souls and deaden our influence on others, our relationship with others. And help us to repent and trust in you, the life giver who gave his life so that we could really live and so that we could give life to others imitating you. Please help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. And I pray that you would raise faith and hope and love and confidence and courage to life. In Jesus' name, amen.